Warning, this episode contains adult content and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. Unashamed, the recovery podcast. Where we are breaking the shame and stigma of addiction and recovery. One episode at a time. By having real conversations about real recovery. Hello, Recovery family. Welcome to a another episode of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Josh, a recovering addict that's celebrating 20 years, well, celebrating recovery from a 20-year porn and sex addiction. On today's episode, we bring you another guest to share another story of hope for recovery and overcoming addiction. And at the center of what the Unashamed Recovery Podcast is all about is breaking the stigma and breaking the shame of addiction and of recovery. And we do all that by having honest and having real conversations with real people in real recovery, like our episode today. It is a proven fact that we heal once the shame is gone and shame dies when we share in safe places. And I hope that this podcast is a safe place for all, for those who share and for those who are listening. There is healing in sharing our secrets and our stories of addiction, trials and our powerlessness, and even more healing in hearing how others recover through their own stories, or like our guest today, sharing her story of how she overcame addiction. And like I mentioned, we do have a guest with us today. My guest is Katie. Katie, thank you for taking some time out of your day today to stop by and to talk a little bit of recovery with me and the rest of the recovery family. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem, Katie. Now, Katie, before we uh, dive in and we start to unpack your uh, story a little bit, Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, give them just a little bit of a background and uh, just a little bit of a context to the person that you are and to the story that they're about to hear. Okay, so today, these days, I am a mom, I'm a wife, I have three children, I've got three cats, I live in the middle of Baltimore City in a row home. I, um, I love being outside and just, you know, being somebody that's honest, being somebody that's willing and somebody that's open. I, I just love life today. And I wake up every single morning saying thank you to my higher power for waking me up because every, there was years, every single day I'd wake up and tell him to fuck off because I didn't want to be awake and it would kill me. Man, that, that is, uh, that's powerful there. That yeah. is, uh, that's truly powerful. That's uh, a dark place to be. And to I come from was, there to come where you're at now, it's, that's something. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. My story is pretty intense. Well, hey, I, I'm, uh, I'm ready to hear it. And uh, Katie, it's funny how uh, me and you got to talking. Uh, I saw some of your posts on, I think it was Instagram. And yes. some of the stuff that you were just sharing on Instagram. And I was like, man, I've got to have her tell her story. I, I, I knew just from the little bit of bits and pieces that you were putting on Instagram, I knew you were going to have a very good story. And so, Katie, as we move on and we get into your story, like all great stories, 
and all great books, they all have a beginning. So what does the beginning of Katie's book look like? What is chapter one for you? Chapter one is basically showing me as a young child, I um, had, I have two amazing parents. Um, I grew up as an only child um, and I grew up in Southern New Jersey where we had a giant house and a huge amount of land and I live in the woods. And I spent most of my time alone um, with myself and my thoughts running around the woods, making forts, you know, climbing trees, riding bikes. It was, it was the time, you know, in the early 90s where, you know, I, I could run around with some friends and disappear into the, into the forest and no one would question where I was. You know, it wasn't a scary time. It was, um, I lived in a pretty rural-ish type area um, there wasn't a lot of people around, I would say, um, but yeah. it was, it was beautiful growing up. I really liked it. But looking back now, I see that I was like super alone all the time. Um, like my mom was the breadwinner. She was, um, she was breaking glass ceilings before they were even like known about. She was president and CEO of several large corporations. Um, one of which was in a factory in Harlem, New Jersey. I mean, Harlem, New York. And like she would go, she would be up ready to leave for work at like four in the morning and she'd come home around nine o'clock at night. And like, I, would, I you know, I wouldn't really see her very much except on the weekends, but when she was there, she was present. She was, she did the best she could and she made a beautiful life for us. But you know, I was alone all the time. I really don't know what my dad was doing. I know that he was an alcoholic and he was in treatment when I was younger. Um, you know, so, I mean, I come from a long line of alcoholics. This, this isn't, you know, an accident. Um, but uh, around the age of 12, I don't know what happened. I really can't pinpoint anything that happened because, like I said, I mean, I was well-liked. I had a good group of friends. I was athletic. I was in, like, the school's ensemble playing flute I was like second chair like I was doing a lot of stuff I had a lot of good friends I was living a, a what, what I would think is like a normal American life um but when I was 12 years old something happened and I don't know it had to be chemical in my brain because that's when I would lock myself in my closet and start cutting I was cutting my arms um and I, I, looking at it now, it's like I did it because I wanted to feel something other than what I was feeling in my head, but I couldn't explain it, and I didn't tell anybody. So, like with uh, most instances, well, most people who go down that path of start cutting, usually it's from some type of traumatic event that has happened, uh, a loved one that's passed away, or, or something that has traumatically changed you, and there, there was there wasn't anything like that for you. No, no, there was nothing like, it was just maybe like a slow drama, like maybe because I was alone all the time. You know, I was in my thoughts a lot. Like I was left to my own devices to create in my mind and to, I, I don't know. I, there is no reason. Like I have never been like up until then, like I'd never been abused. I'd never been yeah. Um, molested or anything like that I had I mean my parents are wonderful people I love them very much we have a great relationship today um, so there's nothing there <laughs> it's just me being a depressed little 12 year old without knowing what else to do besides put a blade to her arms and once people started noticing that because I did not a lot of people are like oh it's a cry for help and I'm like nah get back like I'm gonna move this so that no one sees it um, and that continued for a while, actually. And then um, I ended up being really, really good at competitive swimming. Um, like, I was recruited onto this year-round swim team near where I lived, and I did it. I loved it. Everything was great. The cutting slowed, almost completely stopped. And then I got accepted onto the national team for our area. So it was the uh, tri-state area 
New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. It was very, very exciting. I started training, you know, in the mornings before school, after school. I was like 16 or something years old. So like, I felt very like, oh my God, why like, is this real life? And I was, I was just training a lot. And I think that that gave me the release that I needed that I was getting from self-injury. Um, like the more, I, the better I got, the more relief I felt because that meant that was, I was working really hard. Um, and then 9-11 happened. I was in 10th grade. My mother um, was in New York City in the building next door to the first tower. Man. And her trauma is insane. The way that she tells what happened, I, I can barely <laughs> listen to it. Yeah. It's horrifying and I'm not gonna relay any of it here. My trauma yeah. from that is mostly just not knowing if she was dead or alive. Um, yeah. You know, all the cell towers were gone because we lived close to Philadelphia. Um, so we're like two hours from New York. So we weren't like right there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, it was pretty damn close. And the fact that I could not get in touch with my mom, my dad was freaking out. And while my dad and I were on the phone, I was in the cafeteria trying to figure out what my mom was going to watch the second tower hit on TV. And I just lost my shit, you know, um, my dad came to get me. We went home. My mom, apparently she, I tell you, I told you she's like breaking glass ceilings before they were glass ceilings. This woman apparently gets in her car and starts leaving and they have all these barricades up and police yeah. so that you can't leave the island. <laughs> and she's like, nope. And she got out of her car. She says that she moved all the barricades and just like went and she like <laughs> left. <laughs> and I can see her doing that. I was like, oh my God. When, when I look at it now, I'm like, you would, you would. You would tell the police like, where do you think you're going? And she said, home, <laughs> like bye. <laughs> so luckily she made it. It was great to see her. I have never felt so relieved in my life. And she had like a coming to Jesus moment. I like to call it because she was like, um, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to be home with my, with my daughter because yeah. I don't, I wasn't there for so much. Um, and she's like to my dad, like, you need to find a job now. <laughs> so he picked up a job in DC um, with the army and so we moved, we moved in summer between, um, <laughs> between sophomore year of high school and junior year of high school. And like, I had been going to the same school since pre-K, like up through 10th grade. Ooh. So I imagine that, I imagine that yeah, was, it, was it was crazy. I was like, okay, I'm gonna meet all new people in high school. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, I was like, well, I have to swim, right? And I. I tried out for this team just to try out, just to see what would happen. The coach was like the former Olympics coach for so many years for the U.S. women's swim team and all this. And I got on, like they wanted me. And I was just like, let's go, what? I'm on wow. the U.S. national team, what's going on? Yeah, it was cool. amazing. And that's so cool. as you can, yeah, so I barely even made friends at my school because I was always swimming. Like I was at practice like 4 a.m. to 7.30 and then go to school and then I'd leave school at 3.30 and go back to the practice place at American University and like swim until like, and then do weights and medicine balls and all that until like 7.38, go home, eat, yeah. you know, this whole deal. So, and, um, so during all that time, were you still cutting any or had it come mm -hmm. to a complete stop? It came to a complete stop because, you know, I, I was getting the relief I think I needed um, by working so hard. My body, I was working my body so hard, like doing 30 pound medicine ball training for like an hour before getting in the pool for like two and a half hours where we were just like killing our bodies. And, you know, yeah. I was so strong. I love the tangible results too. It was just really cool. I was, was fascinated with the sport and I still like the whole time I didn't believe that I belonged there I didn't think I deserved to be on the team like my whole team I would say 90 percent no I think 75 percent of my team was were going to Olympic trials I wasn't like I was I would say that I, I looking back I belonged there but I was not I was like the bottom of like the best team in the country 
So, I mean, I was still good, but yeah. I'm not going to, I wasn't going to trials or anything, which was okay. I mean, I was content with that because I was doing the best, you know, I, I was doing the best I could. Even though I was never good enough, I still, it, it always pushed me, you know, but this is where the, the word that I loathe came into my life and that's potential. I was told every day by my coach that I have so much potential. My mom would say, yeah, you've got a lot of potential. You've got so much potential. Everyone just told me I've got potential, which in my mind means you're not good enough. Try harder. And every time I would do something like a good grade in school, like I graduated high school in the top 10% of my class. I graduated with honors. I had like this whole fancy thing and I really pushed myself to the limit everything I did like there was never good enough um and you know that still remains today but I'm a lot healthier about it um but I just like every time I would do something really good my mom you know she'd say I'm really proud of you but here's something you could do maybe different next time so it was always it was always something else it was always something like I never I had never heard like I'm just really proud of you yeah ever in my life <laughs> um, there's always been I, something else attached to it yeah like even in band like you like you did really well maybe next time like don't fold your legs under the chair or like <laughs> you know it was always something there was yeah. always something to, yeah. to to say and so I was always thinking that I always had to do something different try harder nothing was good like I needed to always be going better and so that's what was drilled into my head for my whole life. Um, there was an instance when I was a senior in high school where I was invited to a party. And I was like, holy cow. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to go to a party. <laughs> and like, I knew from movies, like, she's all that and can't hardly wait in American Pie that like, there's drinking at parties. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sitting with a group of girls that like did take me in as friends, but they were, they were not swimmers. They didn't do athletics or anything. They were just really nice girls. And I was part of their group, I guess. Um, and they were talking about who's going to bring the ice luge <laughs> and who's going to bring a keg. And I was like, what's an ice luge? Like, that's a sport. Like what's going on? Winter Olympics. Here we come. And I didn't know it was like an ice sculpture that chilled a vodka shot like yeah. we were in high school like who's getting ice luges I don't know so <laughs> so on that was like on it that was like a Monday morning we were talking about it because the party was Friday yeah and everyone's like so excited and like what are you gonna wear um but I'd never drank before like that like I'd had sips there here and there my grandfather and my dad would give me whiskey like it was nothing as a child like yeah. it wasn't a big deal I'd set my mom's wine here and there. Like, literally, no one cared. Um, but I never, like, drank. Um, so so that, that's kind of interesting that you were around it. You're just kind of a normal thing for you as a kid. But yeah. then here you are going to a party, and it was kind of uh, it was something different for you. That, that's interesting. Yeah, because the thing with my parents was always like, oh, like, it's just a sip. Like, it's not a big deal. But, like, they wouldn't give me my own drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I like my, at this time my dad wasn't drinking I knew where the liquor was there was some whiskey left over and it was super super dusty so I went down after my parents went to bed and I grabbed this bottle I poured an entire pint glass of Maker's Mark and I got you know a Diet Coke and went up to my room and I shut the door and I locked it and I you know, was in the dark all by myself. I put my earphones on and I started to drink. I took a sip first of the maker's mark and I was like, <laughs> like shuddering. Like I, <laughs> I remember this whole situation plain as day. Like it happened yesterday. I just remember that like first like warm and yeah. goosebumps all over my body. And I like, <laughs> like see that feeling, like I couldn't fucking breathe. And, um, and then I was like, that was gross. <laughs> Let me get my soda. <laughs> and so then I took another gulp and I took the soda and they mixed really well together. It had this like really caramelly, well, vanilla like <laughs> feeling. 
And then I felt like for the first time in my life, I got the hug I never got. It got, gave me the I'm proud of you that I never ever heard before. I felt free for the first time in my life that my brain wasn't beating me up, that I wasn't being told that I had potential, that I could just be. I relaxed into my bones for the first time. I was comfortable with who I was. It wasn't, you know, trying to be somebody else. I was just Katie and it was, it was a relief. And I fell into that and it was so nice. I got in my bed, I put on some music and I just, I was warm and I felt so good. And then I started feeling fun, you know. That's amazing at how all these years since then, you can still remember that yeah. exact moment. That's Yeah, and it's funny that's because, amazing. Like, you know, I really like ice cream. I really like pizza. I super like cheese seeks. But I don't remember my first ice cream. I don't yeah. remember my first pizza slice, and I don't remember my first cheesesteak. But I will always remember my first drink. My first drunk. I will always remember it. That's, and I remember. That's amazing. Know, yeah. It's, it's kind of a, a very deep impression that. Uh, well, that's, that's what I was always chasing was that feeling of relief, of peace, you know, of calm, of my brain shutting off, depression leaving, you know, the ability to just be myself, which I didn't necessarily know who that was. Um, it was, it was amazing and I loved it and I wanted that for the rest of my life. And then, you know, I started feeling silly, you know, and I started dancing and I was just like singing along to songs and just having yeah. fun. And then I started to feel sick and I, then I don't remember anything. But when I woke up in the morning, I was on the floor covered in vomit there was an empty glass of Maker's Mark, which means I drank the whole fucking thing. You know, that's yeah. a lot. Um, yeah. I couldn't move. Like, I wanted to die. <laughs> but so, I, did that, I, keep, you, I, oh did that no, keep you from like, drinking again? No, it's fucking worth it. Every second was worth it. And my, I even had a fever. I gave myself acute alcohol poisoning, and no one knew it Man. because I... Um, I mean, no one knew I was drinking. My mom, you know, she was like, oh, no, you have the flu. Let's, you know, keep you home and I'll take care of you. And I was like, fuck yeah, yeah. this is great. Yeah. <laughs> and I was ready. You know, I was all better in time for the party. <laughs> and that first party was great. You know, I overdid it. But yeah. before I overdid it, I, you know, I, I had... I had so much fun. I played quarters. I played beer pong. I kissed a boy. I danced. I, you know, I felt a part of for so long. I didn't because I like weird stuff. I'm into the macabre. I'm into the dark of things. I really like metal. I really like, like yeah. really have that. Like I love EDM music, like the house music and trance music that has those really deep bass drops. Like I just love the feeling of intensity, I guess. Um, yeah. And like, no one else liked that stuff. Everyone was into like, you know, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Hanson and NSYNC. And I liked Marilyn Manson and like Pantera and Corn and Rob Zombie. And like, yeah. it wasn't popular. So I would like not tell people about that. And like, I really liked dark things. I loved horror movies. And like, yeah. but that night, you know, I felt. I felt a part of like I could just be me and like people were cool with it and they were like wow you're cool you know we didn't know that about you and I was like oh it's because I'm swimming all the time it's fine um <laughs> but I had a taste of like freedom again but I had so much fun like I was yeah. laughing and you know being part of something bigger than me and I really liked it um I'm gonna fast forward to college <laughs> okay go ahead. Um, so I didn't really drink much after that experience in high okay. school maybe once or twice more but nothing nothing major because you know I really was focused on swimming I was really um I really wanted to do well in in my sports so I took it seriously yeah. um I ended up going to college for swimming I went to Bucknell University uh division one school in, in like the middle of nowhere Pennsylvania there's like Amish people around and stuff 
Um, it's a really good engineering school. Um, I hate math and science. I'm not good at it. <laughs> but they also had like really great art history program randomly. So I was like, cool, I'll be an art historian. We'll do this. And um, I was swimming on the team and I made a bunch of cool friends. Like I got a boyfriend who was not a swimmer. He was very, very cool. He had tattoos and he played the guitar and he like, he worked at the local coffee shop. Like I still think he's a great guy. Like I fucked everything up. Like he was wonderful. Um, he still is wonderful. <laughs> I'm sure. I don't know. Um, but you know, I went out on a to a party when I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to be like in bed for practice the next morning, but I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna go to a party at the football house that I heard was happening. I'm gonna go with these other friends I made. And so that's what I did. And I got drunk there and I fell and I twisted my ankle so badly. I couldn't walk. I la I just laid in the middle of the street at like three o'clock in the morning. Uh, I couldn't get up. I was calling my mom and my dad and her mom were like literally just laughing super hard because like they didn't know the, ser the seriousness of it. Yeah. This is the first time their daughter calls home drunk and they're just dying. They think it's the funniest thing ever. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't and see the, how the seriousness of it. They don't see the progress, the progression. Okay. Alcoholics Anonymous teaches that alcoholism is a progressive disease. And my story is a perfect example of the progression. So, um, I can no longer swim. I'm off the team. I hung up my cap and goggles for good. And suddenly, who am I? What am I? I was Katie the swimmer for so, so long. Like I even had nutritionists that I was taking in 6,000 calories a day in order to maintain the weight that I was at. Like it was, it was serious. It was a really big deal. Yeah. Um, like professional athlete practice status. It's like what we were doing. Um, so now I couldn't, I didn't have my same friends because they were always swimming together. I wasn't with them. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have friends. I didn't, I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know how to be social. I didn't know anything. Um, so I stopped eating. I started hanging out with all the people that were drinking all the time. I started trying to find affection and I wanted affection really badly. I just want to be loved, right? So I'm like go, leaving my relationship, seeking affection from other men. I would never like cheat on my boyfriend. I just wanted people to like me or something. Yeah. I just wanted to feel like wanted. Um, so whenever my parents picked me up, oh, it's when I discovered like anorexia and I was obsessed. It was really bad. I was on these message boards, like blue dragonfly or whatever the hell it was, and just like constantly just it it took over my life. My parents had dropped me off, like I was 140 something pounds of pure muscle, Man. tan, you know, fit. And they picked me up. I'm yeah. like literally gray with like purple under eyes. I was 105 pounds and barely could walk. Like my muscles like completely deteriorated um yeah. atrophied or whatever um they pick me home and I get worse I'm, I'm sliding under 100 pounds like it got really bad I end up getting admitted to Shepherd Pratt's which is like the uh, a psych hospital here in um Towson by, Mar by Baltimore but we were living down south by DC at this time and uh they they admit me there I'm there for a few months you know I can't follow rules to save my life. So I'm constantly getting privileges taken away. Um, finally, I leave, I gain some weight, I go back home, I lose it all and more. Um, my parents are terrified. Um, I ended up going to another treatment center in Philadelphia. For so what was, causing, what was causing that weight loss? I was anorexic, so I was like super restricting my calorie intake to a point that was very unhealthy. And anytime I went over that, I would purge. So I would throw, make myself throw up. Um, I never ever binged. It was like super weird. So it wasn't anything with the alcohol during this time. It was no, just the I stopped drinking because of this. I got you. Okay. So I like to think that my addictions are like a whack-a-mole game. <laughs> So like when like when my <laughs> my eating disorder like is super high like the other ones are kind of quiet, 
I got you. Um, and so, you know, I went to another treatment center. I came home. I was pretty strong. I was feeling good. I decided to go back to college because that's what we do. We go to college. And um, so I decided to go to American University because it's close to home. My mom was working as a, um, as a professor there. It was great, great, great. Um, I joined a sorority, like I did the whole thing, but what happened was I decided to go out with some people that were like real, I don't know how to describe them. They were just, there was something about them that I wanted. They were mysterious and they were beautiful and they just seemed older. Maybe they were by like a year, but they weren't like older, <laughs> but like they were like fancier or something and like they invited me to go out clubbing with them and I discovered my new favorite thing in the whole world and I was going to VIP tables with all the alcohol I could ever want or need and I'm being photographed for these like DC like fancy people magazine and like I don't even know yeah and I was just like in this new world that I wanted nothing else this is all I wanted and so I did anything it took to make sure that that happened. Um, but then I, you know, I'm out at a club with like the son of the is like Israel's, what's it called? Official rabbi. And like, we're drinking and he pop, pulls out, you know, a white powder. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? And so I do a line of cocaine and I never wanted to feel anything different than that. I'm like, from the first day that I ever tried using Coke, I was like super addicted. I, that night I used, I spent every dime I had on two eight balls. Like, what am I doing? Why was I buying like seven grams of cocaine the first day I've ever tried it? Like, Damn. I don't know how to slow down. <laughs> and so well, like, in there, just yeah and All like I had my just... own apartment at this point and like I was having people over they were bringing their own shit I had mine I was very friendly I was sharing everything was great I had lots of friends and then suddenly like less people are coming over I'm starting to lose friends I'm stopping telling people that I have what I have I had this boyfriend who introduced me to this woman and she was like I mean, I don't know who she was. She was an Ecuadorian woman who was getting kilos of cocaine and heroin. And I was helping her bag it up. Like her, his, her very minimum order was like, I don't know, something like 10 grand. So I'm, I'm like packing up these amazingly huge things and she just let me have whatever I wanted. So I was, I was like a cocaine werewolf. I was like, like I was crazy I was wearing like a cowboy hat that says I love Jesus on it it was glow in the dark I was wearing giant sunglasses everywhere I went like literally just rocking back and forth like trying to have conversations not being able to I wasn't really eating I went to freaking class my mom was a, like I said a professor at American University and she was the only teacher of this one subject that I had to have for my major. So I'm like in her class and I show up this one day with my cowboy hat. I love Jesus, big giant glasses, booty shorts, Ugg boots and a tank top. And meanwhile, it's like 27 degrees out and it's, there's a, a snowstorm that I had walked through to get to class. I didn't bring my backpack. I didn't bring my computer. I didn't bring any notebooks. I'm just sitting there like, like I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, my mom like literally stopped class and asked me to leave and was just like, I don't know what's going on, but you have to get out of here. <laughs> I was like, bye. And, um, you know, it just kept going. It kept getting worse and worse until like I had a gun on my head and I actually pulled the, um, what's this part of the gun called? The barrel? Yeah. <laughs> The barrel. I pulled the barrel and I was like holding it against my forehead and the guy was like, I'm gonna shoot you and I was like, just fucking shoot me then. Just do it. Fucking shoot me. And so he did. He pulled the trigger. It Man. didn't go off. He got wow. I hit him. He drops the gun and it goes off. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, I'm out. So I ran. And I had someone following me running, but I was I I was a scrappy little thing. I was running. 
and I was running and running and running and running. I don't know when I stopped and I don't know how I got to where I was, but you know, God saved me that day. Um, so of all these, these situations that you found yourself in, would you say that was your rock bottom? Or no, I haven't even gotten bottom? there. My yeah. rock bottom didn't come for like so, so long. Like I ended up going in treatment in, in, in Newport Beach, California. I was in like an $8 million house on the beach. I had, there was only six women there at a time. We had a masseuse, we had a live-in chef, we had, you know, um, yoga people and, it was amazing. Um, I actually met my first sponsor there. Her name was Molly. She was like sick to bright red hair, always chain smoking with a cup of black coffee. And she would wake up, I would wake up every morning and come downstairs and she'd say, Kate, how free do you want to be? How free do you want to be? And I was just like, I don't know, man, but I have it tattooed on me now. I got it tattooed on me in like 2008, six. 2006 and um that became one of my very it's become one of my very favorite things um because I understand it now I didn't understand it then I didn't understand what freedom from self meant I didn't know what freedom from bondage meant um at that point I only knew freedom from my problems and that always came in the form of a bottle or a drug um so I ended up getting it was a long-term program I was there for a few months I got kicked out because I couldn't stop drinking um and I got, I got, they, they sent me to another rehab facility in Mississippi and that was not on the beach and it was not wonderful, <laughs> but, um, it was like more militaristic and I do, I do really well with like hard rules. I do really well with structure. I think it comes from swimming. I just really like, like, I like it when people are kind of rough. Yeah. Like. I don't know. It's from all my coaches, very, I guess. Very, very rigid. Yeah, there's set expectations. You know what to do. I loved it. I was there for like many months. That place had like a step system. But by the time I got to the third stage, I had my car. I had a job, but I still lived on campus. But I was going to this meeting house. Um, I met a guy, duh. And like, I really liked him. He really liked me. We were kind of together. Um, I want to make this really clear though, because I, I was doing all this stuff. I was going to meetings. I had sponsors. I was doing this, but I didn't want to be sober. I want to make this clear because I don't want people to think that the program doesn't work. I didn't work it. Yeah. I didn't want to be sober. If I did, I wouldn't be going to these meeting houses looking for dudes. I would have been looking for a solution. So I looked for a dude and it turned, we ended up, you know, going out together. It started with a beer and it ended with me alone in a motel room, like carpet surfing for crack. I, my teeth were black. All my teeth were, were just black. My hands were sweaty and covered in black from the oxidation from the copper that was in the stem. Yeah. I couldn't breathe right. I was puking up blood. And this was from my very first experience of crack. Like when I smoked that first bo- <laughs> crack rock, oh, I was like, the angels have come down from heaven and filled my entire body. And they're flooding their little wings and they're giving me peace. And like, I was literally like crazy from this point on for like a while. I got kicked out. Let's just put that out there. I got kicked out of that rehab and I got sent to the state run facility in Jackson, Mississippi for people like indigents and stuff. Oh yeah, I traded my car for an eight ball crack. I don't know where my car is at this point. Like I, yeah, I got, it so was you bad. just went on, just went on down I go, the I go, cause I go hard. I'm like, I don't just fucking do things lightly. Yeah. I, I go hard in the paint every time. So anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I'm kicked out. I'm in this like literally state run facility, like, everyone's either coming there from jail or from the streets <laughs> and I'm just like what's up everybody hi <laughs> and you know I couldn't I couldn't do what I wanted I ended up like my eating disorder came back really strong while I was there um but it, this place was um co-ed but we weren't allowed to like um fraternize with the guys yeah but, um I saw one guy he saw me and we were just like "Ooh." 
I like you. Meanwhile, we hadn't even spoken words to each other, but he sent a note over to my side. Like, he put it inside of a football, and I took it, and he was like, do you want to get out of here? <laughs> I was like, sure. So <laughs> I packed my stuff, and he, like, came back. He left, and then he came back in someone else's pickup truck with a suitcase of um, natural light and, like, a 32,000, a 36 box of natty light. Yeah. Yeah, and I get in the back of his friend's pickup truck with my, <laughs> and he hands me a natural light, and we crack it open, and then the next four years of my life were hell. From that point forward, he and I were together twenty four seven, homeless, in Jackson, Mississippi, in surrounding country town Terry, Mississippi, and yeah. um, we did. I don't know if you know this, but. Uh, this podcast, we're here in Mississippi in Meridian, which is just Oh my god. Right? I worked and at the for, Buckle in the Ridgeland Mall. And I worked so, at and, um I worked at Backyard Burger in Byram. Okay. And I worked <laughs> yep. at Majestic Burger in Flowood. And I, everybody who's listening, I want I want you to understand that what she talked about with the natural light and hopping in the back of the guy's truck is a very Mississippi thing. Like, yeah. if you were to say anything about Mississippi, that would be like the most common, <laughs> but that's the most Mississippi thing anybody could say probably. Like, yeah, that's, that's so very like we, believable. We rode, you know, to this guy's house and we had the garage open and sat, sat in the garage smoking cigarettes, drinking Natty Light forever. His, this guy's wife like made crock pot um, cheese dip and we were that's what we did and then he had yeah. this he had a an old mobile like a like an rv like a winnebago type thing yeah um that was on the back 40 and <laughs> you know <laughs> i'd never heard that term before i didn't know what that <laughs> meant but what i knew is that's where we were going to be staying for the next yeah. you know until whatever but it was like really cold and you know I wasn't used to this I guess um but I would become yeah. used to it um that night we went back there and his I'm not going to give his name since yeah we're where yeah, we were where he is yeah Yay. we will we will, <laughs> we will observe the uh the rules of recovering we'll oh maintain God, anonymity we'll maintain his anonymity for his yeah. <laughs> um he um he asked if I wanted to go get go get high and you know for the next three and a half years that's what we did. We were homeless, we were staying in abandoned places, squatting in houses, living in people's barns, living in lofts. He built this crazy loft in his parents, like back in the barn, like with a old dirty mattress and you know, up there I would drink 24 ounce cans of natural light that had been sitting out that had a cigarette butt in it in the mornings just so I could make my hands stop shaking. Um, yeah. I was having, if I didn't have a, my, a alcohol in my system, I would start to have like serious withdrawals that would have probably killed me had I not gotten another beer. And um, that started to scare me. Um, and so were I, you still doing the crack at this time? Oh, or yeah. were you just back on that? Yeah, so you were, we're doing... definitely we're just smoking crack drinking beer there was one instance where we actually were able to get him we lived in a mobile home and and you know I was really happy that we had a place you know and it was $350 a month so we couldn't make rent um because our habit was too intense like he had a job he's an electrician um I worked in fast food and we couldn't make enough money to keep a roof over our heads but there was this one time we were gonna go mudding or whatever the hell and we were <laughs> yeah we were like on the four-wheeler and he's going with his friend and his friend's girlfriend so it was like a couple's mudding adventure yeah um and so we're like on these four-wheelers getting all dirty and shit and his other girlfriend you know she's like into this like she really liked it and she was so pretty like she had big boobs a big ass like tiny little waist just like bright red hair and here I, I like I just felt so disgusting next to her and um we ended up you know breaking into someone's house and eating their hot dogs which was super weird 
and like fun, like unheated up like there was no one in the house we went in and like literally opened a package of hot dogs and just ate the hot dogs and then you know we went back to our mo our mobile home estate and um anthony oh <laughs> and he asked um he asked the couple to stay over the night because it was late you know there was they were drinking whatever so they go to their bedroom and we start smoking crack and i start being like you just want them to stay so you can go fuck her right i shouldn't have said these things so i i was just like real jealous and i hated myself real like really bad and he uh i remember very clearly he uh took a cigarette out of his mouth and he stubbed it out in this like crystal ashtray and he picked it up and he threw it across the table and it hit me straight in the head and i flew backwards in my chair and i was like what and then the worst night of my entire life began it was at least an hour and a half of him beating me telling me how he wanted me to be dead that i didn't deserve anyone else but him that no one else would love me that I was a piece of trash. And then he was like punching me, kicking me. He threw my head through a window, like pieces of my scalp and my hair were stuck in the glass. He, um, he was kicking my kidneys until I couldn't breathe. I, and then I think he like felt bad and he like put me in the bathtub and he was trying to like wash me off or whatever. And I, I guess like he had hit me with my phone too because he was like, you're obviously seeing someone else. I'm going to go through your phone. And because I was 100% obsessed with this guy, I wasn't, like I obsessed over things, including my partner. And like, I loved him very dearly. I obsessed, I was obsessed and codependent and completely enmeshed. It wasn't love, but at the time I thought it was. And like he, he threw my phone at my head. I was, had huge cuts in my head, I was bleeding everywhere. I came out of the tub and I and I laid down on the bed and then he proceeded to rape me like right there and he was beating me with his belt while it was happening I he put me back in the bathtub and then I laid back down on the on the on the on the bed and I guess my neighbor heard us because why wouldn't she it's a fucking mobile home They're made out of paper yeah. and the police came and I came to and I was looking around and like the bath water was red. There were ha bloody handprints all over my bed. I was naked, you know. Someone came in, um, a policewoman came in. They had to wait. Apparently, they were waiting because they needed a woman cop. Yeah. And so she came in and, like, they assessed the scene. He had handcuffs on. I go to the hospital. I'm put into, like, an, a medically induced coma. And, um, when I finally was able to leave, my parents took me home. I would say it was about four days later, I had purchased a Greyhound ticket and went right back. And spent some more years down there. And we made a lot of bad choices and decisions. We were robbed a lot. We got, you know, we ran cons on people. We stole so much. If you had an open garage during the day, we'd taken your like your Husqvarna chainsaws and your lawn mower and your trailer off your truck and go out to another county and sell it. Yeah. And um, it was just a miserable life. We ended up having to be, there was an intervention with his family and my family and they literally separated us. They came to, they came to this like abandoned house. It was like, it's seriously falling, falling down in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, they separated us and I never went back. And I was so obsessed with him. I still was like trying to get back together and all this. He got a tattoo of my name on his chest. And like, it's like, what are you gonna do about that now? He's like, oh, I don't know. I recently found out he's in jail for doing the same exact stuff that we were doing. Um, yeah. And I feel bad for him today. I just yeah. really feel bad. I mean, now that I've had my coming to and realizing that this isn't the way to live, but like, that wasn't even a rock bottom for me. I just kept going. I couldn't stop. We were, my parents had moved to Texas, um, in the hill country near Austin. And I was just, um, I decided to go to Texas State in San Marcos, 
which by the way was the best school I've ever been to education wise which blew my mind because I've been to Bucknell and American University which are like expensive private schools but like the big state school provided me with amazing education (laughs) I just have to toot their horn for a minute because they're not just a party school they fucking kill it education um but like the same thing I just I just wanted to get high and I wanted to drink because I just wanted to escape what my life was becoming I had been gang raped at this point I had been taken advantage of I'd been beaten to a point of almost dying like I no longer had any self-respect and I no longer gave a shit about anything like I didn't care anymore I would do whatever for whatever at this point and so I like any good fucking millennial drug addict I get on google.com and I'm looking up where the highest crime rates for drug like drug drug um arrests and mm-hmm. gun violence and it, i could i like venn diagrammed everything and like excel spreadsheeted and i found one or intersection where like the most happened i was like i'm gonna go there and so i did and i met this guy <laughs> named t uh, met and, guy. yeah no this wasn't like a boyfriend guy okay this was like a dealer guy okay. and i actually became really good friends with his girlfriend and like I would go over because he ended up getting arrested but like she had all the supply anyway so I would like go over to their apartment and hang out with the with her for a little while I'd spend $700 and take my stuff I would get like a week's worth but then I would just do it all in one night and like I couldn't my my I could see we could see my heart beating out of my chest like I just couldn't stop if you gave me something for a week it'd be gone like either there was no stopping me I was stealing wine and liquor from my parents. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal, but I would do shit that was crazy. Like I wanted to get a job at the police station on my school, like on my campus. <laughs> so I did. And I would, I smoked crack one time in the police station because I wanted to see if I could. And I could, I did. Um, I, I made crazy. a police, I made a cop fall in love with me. And like, I smoked crack in his house. He had no idea. And like, I actually, I, he told me I could use his car for something. So I did, I took it. And his car did not come back the same, unfortunately. And it was like a BMW with like camel colored leather seats and they were colored with blue ink because a pen exploded when I was trying to press, like sh- scrape the Brillo. And like, I'd spilled beer and there was no more power steering. <laughs> and like, Damn. yeah, I just left it and then walked home. And then, cause it, I couldn't and ran out of gas. I was like, okay, bye. Obviously we broke up. And, um, you know, it just kept going and kept going and kept going. Uh, eventually I met this guy who happened to be my husband today. Um, and he was worth quitting for. I quit using every, any drug, anything for him. I loved him. I mean, I knew for the first time what being loved felt like, and it wasn't what, the guy from Mississippi did at all. That was my benchmark for what love and relationships look like. Because yeah. I'd been with him for almost four years and I thought that that's, you know, I thought that's how it was. Um, but it wasn't. And I learned. And I still have problems today. Whenever, like, if he get if my husband, like, is annoyed by something, I'm like, oh God, like, okay, we're going to get a divorce. Like, this is how... I'm gonna like deal with you know the kids. It's not and I'm like I go there because I'm afraid yeah. that he's gonna like be so angry, but like literally he doesn't even lunch. And then he'll say he loves me after and I'm just confused because even even like eight years or seven years removed, I'm still just like so scared. Um because yeah, that's what you were used to and that's kind of yeah, what you resort been, back to. Yeah, it's been like kind of ingrained in my mind, but like I was talking about the whack-a-mole, without any drugs, my alcoholism skyrocketed. But this time it looked different. Um, I wanted to be a good wife. <laughs> I wanted to be a good mom. So I was like, mommy wine culture, I hid behind that. And I yeah. drank wine and I drank a significant amount of wine. I stopped buying bottles and I started buying boxes because you can't see. And then yeah. whenever we moved to Baltimore, which was almost five years ago, you know, I, um, this liquor, that's not a liquor store. It's like a, cause there's no liquor in or beer or wine in grocery stores here. Um, but there's one like right next to the grocery store that I go to and I would, they had like amazing sales on black box wine. 
where mm-hmm. there'd usually be like 26 bucks, but like some days it'd be like 15. So I'd buy two and then hide them in the house so that when one was empty, I'd replace it and no one would know because yeah. my husband would sometimes, I see now what he was doing, but he'll like, he doesn't like wine. He would like, I'm going to have some wine tonight and catch me off guard. And I'm like, shit, there's not much in there. I just got this. But then I decided to do this. So I was never afraid of being caught. And I started buying bottles, like cheap bottles of vodka and I'd hide them in the laundry room and in places where I knew he wouldn't go. And so like throughout the day, I just go in the back, pretend I'm doing laundry and just take pulls from the vodka bottles because I started being able, not being able to function without it. Waking up in the morning with sweats, shaking, cloudy mind, panic, take a, take a pull from the bottle and something was fine. And that was yeah. scary. Um, I don't need to get into much else except for like, I've definitely been arrested. I definitely spent time in jail. Um, it, well, Katie, uh, I'm pretty sure we could spend a whole other hour talking about yeah. more of this crazy stuff. Talk a little bit about. I'm going to talk about my coming to and yeah. real recovery. Here we go. Yeah. So my last drunk was at um, plant night with some friends from church. We went to do this thing where you arrange succulents. And I got hammered and um, I drove home in a blackout. Must have gotten in a fight with my husband. I woke up the next morning to my middle son crying because he said that daddy told them last night that I'm going to die and they need to prepare for it. They need to be ready. And that was my rock bottom. I've been through so much. And that was the thing that broke me. It broke my heart. It broke my spirit. It gave me the desperation of a drowning man. And I reached out my hand to Alcoholics Anonymous because they were there and I knew what they were doing. And I wanted it more than anything. And I went to that first meeting and the people there made me feel welcome. They liked me for me, the real me, not the me that I had been presenting. They held my hair while I threw up into a bucket during the meeting because they didn't want me to miss a thing. Even though I was puking. And I went to a meeting every single day that week. And I found a sponsor and I have successfully worked through the 12 steps, but I work them every single day. Like every single morning I wake up and I'm like, okay, I'm an alcoholic and he, and I need to just admit that and be like, that's just how things are. And then, you know, I thank God, like I said in the beginning, I thank God every single morning, every morning. The first thing I think is God, thank you for waking me up. Thank you for my children. And thank you for my husband. Thank you for the Alcoholics Anonymous program for saving my life. I do. You know, I keep. I think you made a good point about you have to work your recovery every morning. I think anybody yeah. who has any amount of successful recovery has to get up every morning and work their recovery. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think anybody in that has successful recovery. I don't think anybody who has it does work it every day. I think you have to. No, I think that like it, once you stop, things start going wrong. And like, you know, every day I'm working my recovery. Every single day I'm doing Instagram stuff. Every single day I'm, you know, on the phone with my sponsees. I'm keeping my side of the street clean. If I mess up, I apologize and try to make it right. I have, I'm always up for service. Like I, I, I keep service front, front and center in my life. Um, I do what I can every single day to help as like somebody that needs it, um, whether it be someone suffering with an eating disorder, alcoholism, drug addiction, I'm there because I've been there. I can show that there is, if, as long as there's breath, there's hope. Yeah. My mom prayed me here. I believe that. She never, ever gave up. And every time that she would tell me she's praying for me and I would brushed it off, today I'm so grateful because right. I'm here happy I, this is the thing. I'm content. I always thought that happiness meant complete jubilation, overjoyed, ecstasy, you know, blah, all the time. Yeah. I never knew why I could be, wasn't happy. I was never really happy until I came to be sober in a recovery program that works. It's given me my life back in a way that I never, okay, there's always these quotes like, getting back to the way it was before. I don't ever want to be that person. I never want to go back to the way it was before because that hurt. And that's the reason why all this happened. 
I want to go back to a new version of me, the me that believes in a higher power that talks to a higher power throughout the entire day. I call my higher power God. I talk to God all day long, every day. I call people and check in on them. I make sure that they're doing okay. And if they're not, then I sit with them until they can calm down and say, I'm going to be okay. I talk with people that are in very strong in their recovery programs just to see what they're doing so that I can try to add that into my life. I yeah. am present with my children every single day. And then especially in this Corona, like I'm helping them with school. I am suddenly I say like a, a home was a homeschooler. I am like present with my husband. I, they never experienced this before. I'm here. I cook dinners every night. I play with them. I, I'm running this little, you know, Instagram thing that all I do is give back like these, what it's the whole thing. The whole thing behind on becoming a useful human is to share my experience, strength and hope with the world, with the hopes that someone hears it and gets the message that, yeah, you can go through all this crazy shit and you could have guns to your head and you could be in abusive relationships and you could do everything and anything to get your next hit, your next drink, whatever, but you can have peace. Like every day I wake up, I don't have to even worry one second about where anything's coming from. All I have to worry about is my side of the street and keeping it clear. Yep. And all I have to worry about is making sure that my family's happy or content. That's the thing. Contentment is way better than happiness, in my opinion. Yeah. Like I can live every single day content. I don't have to be wildly like jumping up and down off the roof. Like I'm if I'm content, then I'm happy. And that's new yeah. and frankly amazing. And, you that's know, awesome. there's disappointments. Once you stop drinking, you get into recovery. Like, that does not mean that everything's going to be so easy. Yeah, exactly. But the way that, People like, have that mindset of, yeah. okay, I'm, like, I'm you sober. You have to work. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. And it sucks sometimes. And I know, like, going through something very difficult you know, you can go through it. You don't have to numb out. You don't have to escape. You can handle it. And that's the thing that trips me out. Every single time something crazy happens and I'm like strong, I don't freak out. And like, I, I help people through it. And I'm, I'm the one that's got the love of hood. And when it's all over and done and I'm just still, still here, I'm always just like, whoa, <laughs> who am I? Yeah. Um it's just so cool. I think that sobriety is it's like the biggest gift I've ever given myself. It's the biggest form of self-love, but it's also the biggest gift I've given my family. Um they no longer have to worry about me. Well, like, you know, so something that I've gotten as a reoccurring theme across your story is you have several times have made mention about searching for peace. Uh, chasing mm -hmm. peace and it's amazing how that's been so recurring through your story and then at the end you have found sobriety which is the end all to to peace I mean that is peace and you're yeah. living that if you have, living it today it's yeah. trippy <laughs> it's real trippy to like yeah. be able to sit with myself and not hear voices that say you're a piece of shit Today, my voices are more like, hey, let's do this and this really cool idea that I'm coming up with. Or, hey, yeah. let's like design these t-shirts for Mental Health Awareness Month and give away all the money that you make to a jury. Like, that's what I'm doing. I And if that right there is not a message of hope for somebody yeah. listening who is facing their rock bottom, that I don't know what is. They're out there. That that's, it does get better, and uh, Katie, uh, as much as I hate to, I've got to start wrapping this up. Uh, I want to thank you, Katie, for for coming by and for sharing on such a a great story. Your your story is so amazing, and thank you. Um, I just want to. I'm just, unashamed. Well, hey, that that is great, and uh, I want to show my appreciation for you coming here and for being so open and so vulnerable. And I want to just give you a few moments of an open mic. Uh, my show is yours. You have the chance to say anything that you want to say 
to that one person who may be listening that needs to hear what you have to say. Go ahead. Okay. I want to say, hi, you're not alone. You may be feeling like the end of the world is just falling at your feet and nothing is going right. You may be in such immense pain that you don't even know what to do with it. You may be thinking that death is the answer, but you are so important and you are so worth it. You're worth more than the next drink or the next drug. You are worth the, you're worth doing the work. It might be hard, but as long as, you know, as long as you're alive, you have hope and you have an access to freedom. You have the key to the prison because you made it. You made this prison around you. So you have the key to unlock it. You have the key to walk out. You have the strength. You have the ability to do the hard stuff because once you're doing that, it gets a little easier and you'll suddenly decide to see that you want to do it and you'll feel the peace that I've been talking about and it will be overwhelming, but it will be beautiful. I think that the main thing I, I want to get across is that it's never too late and you're not by yourself. You are not alone in anything and just reach out just reach out your hand and say i need help you'll be met with a hand that's been there and can walk you through it that's right that's a that's a great word and if you're out there and you don't see a light at the end of your tunnel uh that is a great word of hope that katie just shared and recovery family that winds it up for a another episode of Unashamed. I hope today's episode has shined some hope uh, and encouragement for you. Uh, don't forget that you can always join the recovery conversation with us on Twitter. You can find us at Unashamed Podcast. That's Unashamed Podcast. And you can also use the hashtag Recovery Posse. Hashtag Recovery Posse. And you can connect with thousands and thousands of other people in the recovery community worldwide. And guys, if you want to be a guest on the show or simply tell us how we are doing or ask us a question, you can send us an email at unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. Once again, that's unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. And if someone wants to reach out to you, Katie, or maybe book you to speak at a recovery group or to be a guest on another recovery podcast, what is the best way for somebody to, to reach you? Uh, an email or maybe a social media page? Okay, um, I think the best way to reach me would be on my Instagram, which is at on becoming a useful human. And I have an email that is becoming a useful human at gmail.com. So yeah, right. those are probably the two best methods. All right, that sounds great. And with that, y'all, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for your continued support of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast. And I hope that you all continue to stay sober. And until next time, I love y'all. And remember to be unashamed. Mm -hmm.